Hello and welcome back to Take Orally and another therapeutics episode this week and we are going to be looking at uh, nausea, vomiting and antiemetics and as it's a therapeutics episode no one finer than Canal Go Hill, our favourite pharmacist. Hello Thank Canal. You. Always a pleasure, always a pleasure. Welcome. These are strange times we live in. There are, these are strange times. We can't, um, we're to deliver some sense of normality to, for the people that need to listen to their therapeutics podcasts. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully um, this and other Take Orally podcasts are helping uh, people who have had, well not just delays, cancellations to their face-to-face teaching. Hopefully this is helping you with at self-isolation, at home uh, learning. That's right. Um, so, um, nausea, vomiting, uh, very common symptoms, most shifts in A&E, most shifts anywhere. We are going to be seeing somebody who is complaining at least of feeling sick, if not being sick, mm-hmm. for a whole variety of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this episode, we're going to start by looking at um, the pathophysiology of that, yep. the different mechanisms we have that mm-hmm. that, that is, is brought about in us, uh, and then the, the different treatments That's right. that we have and, and how they target all the, the yeah. different pathways. Cool. It's, it's a classic pharmacology podcast. This is a this, this, this is one pharmacists <laughs> love because it's like properly pharmacological. Brilliant. We Excellent. like all that stuff. Excellent. So the first thing to say is nausea and vomiting. So they're slightly different processes in their own way. So we lump them together, but nausea is a feeling it's not actually necessarily a active process Mm -hmm. so you would call nausea the higher center feeling that you would get prior to vomiting but not everybody who feels nauseous will vomit Um, but typically you're stimulating all the vomiting centers and the and the nausea centers Mm. uh, in the cns and then that typically pre is is the predisposition to, to vomiting ultimately but vomiting is actually a really important reflex. So vomiting is a reflex. Mm. That is the process by which contents of your stomach are brought back out of your mouth. Mm. <laughs> it sounds, yeah, it sounds, that's what it is. Your body's decided this is better out than Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And it's actually an incredibly important reflex because you can think that when, you know, our ancestors were eating rotten meat or eating poisonous substances that they didn't have the background to, the body's number one way of getting rid of things are either straight out from the stomach or so, rapidly get through rapidly the other end getting it through. So two, yeah. two of the most important reflexes you, <laughs> you've ever got however for us in emergency medicine and acute medicine too much vomiting is a problem because very much so you're talking about leading to altered homeostasis acid base problems dehydration all sorts of things that can really mess around with you and, and cause quite severe illness so and also sometimes it's a thing so if you for example give IV morphine mm-hmm. you know that patient who wasn't nauseated will be nauseated very soon yeah so that's that's when we're well we've it's a completely different podcast when we've poisoned our patients <laughs> we've given them treatment aka poison them in some cases we can now uh, we can make them nauseous cool so before we go any further um as always uh, or everything's correct at time recording everything we say is correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS guide, uh, NHS Trust other guidelines uh, other trusts may follow different guidelines uh, and of course any views and opinions are the speaker's own so shall we start then with the pathophysiology of nausea and yeah, vomiting yeah absolutely so when we're talking about let's, we'll, so we'll talk nausea and vomiting together but cool. specifically we're looking at vomiting so everything sort of leads from the vomiting centre so we're in the oldest classic part of the brain, our old ancestral part of the brain, the medulla oblongata. 
which always makes me think of the, you ever see the water boy <laughs> the water boy i have oh Without no i have that's probably going to be a film to watch when i'm in self-isolation it's uh it's when he says like well the medulla oblongata is where happiness comes from so he says no happiness uh, from magical rays of sunshine that come down from when you're feeling blue <laughs> oh that's very cute but it's not it's a medulla so in the medulla <laughs> Uh, we have our classic old school reflexes that are governed by the medulla. So it's a, in the medulla sits the vomiting center. And the vomiting center is a tissue and a group of nerves and neurotransmitters that are responsible for triggering the vomiting reflux as, a, as in an efferent pathway. And the vomiting reflux obviously is a classic uh, contraction of the diaphragm. Diaphragm goes up, abdominal muscles tense, uh, gastric sphincter relaxes, epiglottis closes so that you don't aspirate that vomit and then you chuck it all up so actually your body has various different mechanisms to stop you from doing long-term damage to yourself by vomiting um, but they're the effective things that cause vomiting and that's triggered by the vomiting center which sits in the medulla now that sits within um, the blood-brain barrier you then also have a very important uh, structure that sits slightly outside of the blood-brain barrier that's called the chemoreceptor trigger zone. I remember that. Yeah. CTZ. That's it. So the chemoreceptor trigger zone, that doesn't make you vomit. That thing's job is effectively to detect uh, abnormalities in the rest of your body and send the signal to the vomiting center um, to trigger you to vomit. We said the vomiting center sits within the blood-brain barrier. Mm. So that means that most disturbances, most poisonings, most things will not be able to penetrate the blood-brain barrier and hit the vomiting center. Therefore, the vomiting center can't naturally detect all these awful things that are going on. Um, because if there was something that damaging going on and it's inside the CNS by the point it hits the vomiting center, then you've potentially caused massive damage to your brain. So the vomiting center doesn't te technically actually do the detecting work, it's the output. The chemoreceptor trigger zone, because it sits outside of the blood-brain barrier, outside of your direct CNS, um, if that's affected and overwhelmed, you still have a backup process, the vomiting center, and it basically detects anything going sour before it hits the CNS. So that's kind of why we've evolved two separate, separate things for that. Um, so the chemoreceptor trigger zone is your classic structure that will do the detective work for the rest of your body. So, there are your two key structures around tr triggering the vomiting center. We'll talk about the receptors in a minute, because I'm very excited about talking about the receptors. <laughs> um, five key mechanisms on how we trigger the vomiting reflex. Um, there are more, but we'll break it down into five for simplicity. So the first one is blood-borne agents or blood-related issues that are going to cause you to want to vomit. So typically this is the category of poisonings. So have you got something in your blood that is triggering a, to say, say to your body that I want to get it out. So we're looking at electrolyte disturbances. We're looking at, uh, as we say, poisonings with sometimes therapeutic agents of drugs. So things like chemotherapy, uh, also overdoses or underdoses or natural things that can sometimes make you feel sick. So that can be antibiotics and things like that. Um, particularly chemotherapy is your classic one um, but lots of different poisoning plants all sorts of things like that um, that will reach a particular concentration in your blood that will circulate to the chemoreceptor trigger zone the chemoreceptor trigger zone will detect that this is an external stimuli that we don't like <laughs> that will then send a, a signal to the vomiting center and the vomiting center then obviously gets your output 
So that's one of our key ways that um, the vomiting centre is triggered, and that's very much a bloodborne type issue. We then have your direct insult to the GI tract. So this is where um, you have some external stimulus that's sitting in the GI tract. So that could again theoretically be a drug or a tablet because it's an external stimulus, it's not been absorbed yet. It could be rotten food, mm. it could be enterobacteria, it could be you know sort of food food poisoning, food viruses and things like that. And what that's doing is the stomach and the GI tract have special cells within the lumen. Um, the lumen releases serotonin, 5-HT, in response to saying that this is a stimulus that we're not liking, it's causing inflammation and this is causing damage to the GI tract. 5-HT actually is a classic neuroreceptor that triggers the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve then sends um, signals directly to the vomiting center and that causes your vomiting. So this one, not necessarily so much related to the chemoreceptor trigger zone, but that is directly mediated through the GI tract, through serotonin and the vagus nerve. So we have our bloodborne things, we have our direct insults to the GI tract. We then have our vestibular system. Aha. So this is sickness that's in relation to motion, motion sickness. Sea sickness. Sea sickness is a classic example, car sickness, um, all sorts of things like this, vertigo. Uh, even migraines can be, this is the associated sickness you get from this. Um, we have our labyrinth in our inner ear. Uh, some old labyrinth, anatomy. come in. That's the one. Uh, and then we have our vestibular cochlear nerve that goes from your inner ear to your vestibular nuclei. That sits very close to the vomiting center, um, close to the medulla. I think it's in the ponds, I want to say the ponds. I'm not a, neuro I'm not a neurologist, ponds. It's in the ponds. <laughs> Um, that feeling of sickness and motion abnormality with your eyes triggers the signal that goes down the vestibular cochlear nerve, hits the vestibular nuclei, uh, that then sends signals to both the vomiting center directly and the chemoreceptor trigger zone to stimulate a vomiting response. And that's just an abnormal pathway in some people. It's not really, mm. it's, it's not really thought to be I think it's basically an evolutionary mishap. That sort of thing is what they think motion sickness. Because mm. it's quite common. It's something we do quite yeah. often. Yeah. And, and it seems to be things like if you're on a boat, if you, rather than looking at the sea mm -hmm. and following the motion, if you look at the horizon at a fixed point, you mm. can almost trigger yourself. You can trick yourself that you're not moving that much. And so yeah. you can... Tr get around there are those different uh, yeah, things, fixed, yeah. Ga fixed gaze somewhere and mm. focusing on a specific point yeah. but it's effectively a dis dysregulation between what your balance center and your eyes are seeing yeah it doesn't like the difference yeah. absolutely cool so that's all mediated through the inner ear and is balance related and we then have the two higher center um, triggers cool so we have triggers through higher cortical centers in the brain so this is technically um, sensory inputs. So if you get a particularly unpleasant sensory input that's processed by your higher brain centers, so this would be fear, anxiety, um, you can see something that makes you feel scared or uncomfortable. Um, so noxious stimuli, uh, awful smells, not even nasty sounds, anything that hits through the sensory system technically can trigger a vomiting response if you get over a particular threshold and you're tricking the body into vomiting at that point. 
Um, so you know you've heard of people vomiting when you smell really old milk or, mm. or rotten eggs or things mm. like that. It's a noxious stimuli, and that's all mediated through our higher cortical centres. Um, and the problem is with that particular thing is when people vomit for another reason, vomit tends to be a noxious stimuli in its own, <laughs> in its own right. The person who's with you then has to go and have a vomit, yeah. Absolutely, which is one of the actual mechanisms that we talk about for, cyclo vom for cyclical vomiting syndrome. So you have an initial insult that causes vomiting, you vomit, you then get a higher centre response because you don't like that vomit and you vomit again and you end up in this <laughs> awful cycle. And then a, a slight subtype of that as our last sort of mechanism of, of um, nausea is our direct insult to the CNS. So this is head injuries uh -huh. or sometimes space-occupying space lesions, yeah. um, meningitis, uh, inflammatory processes in the brain themselves. So these things are causing direct inflammation to the brain, um, making it swell up. You're putting pressure on various different areas and again you're training intracranial pressure. Yeah, exactly. Hydrocephalus, things like this that will also trigger a response to the, sometimes an involuntary response to the vomiting center. Cool. So they're your classic five mechanisms for, for vomiting. So we have blood-borne problems, electrolytes and poisoning, which is mediated through the chemoreceptor trigger zone. We have direct insults to the GI tract, that's mediated through the vagus nerve, um, and also potentially somewhat through the chemoreceptor trigger zone. We've got our balance issues through the vestibular system, and then we have our higher cortical centers, so fear, anxiety, and direct CNS insult. Cool. So pretty much any type of nausea and vomiting you can think of will fall into one of these five, um, these five things. Oh, the one thing I forgot is when we say direct insult to the GI tract, that's not just um, external stimuli to the GI tract, that can be caused by mechanoreceptors as well. Mm. So for example, um, a pancreatitis or a biliary tract infection, uh, biliary stone, that's going to cause stretch yeah, yeah, yeah. in your visceral organs. Stretch in your visceral organs will also potentially trigger the vagus nerve. Cool. So pretty much everything you can think of, any mechanism, any <laughs> will Will fit into one of those, exactly. under one of those headings. That's right. And this is why we actually really love nausea and vomiting as, as pharmacists, because you can just, <laughs> all you have to do is just think about what your mechanism likely is yeah and you can actually trigger your you can target your treatment appropriately and you can give people the best antiemetic for the job so we'll move on to the pharmacology yes so all of these different centers that we've talked about and we've talked about they're sending signals the way they send signals is via neurotransmitters mm. and they all have slightly different neurotransmitters um, that they mediate their response by and so by targeting particular neurotransmitters and blocking them, we can block the signals to the vomiting center and therefore stop the vomiting from happening and therefore also stopping some of the nauseous feeling that we're getting as well. So if we talk about the vomiting center, the vomiting center itself is sent signals through a variety of neurotransmitters, but classically it's muscarinic related. So it has M1 receptors most likely, and it's very rich in muscarinic receptors. So you can actually block off the vomiting center if you use um, lots of anti-muscarinic agents. It's actually quite tricky to target the vomiting center because it's in the BBB. Mm. And to give potent enough anti-muscarinics that penetrate the blood-brain barrier, you get a lot of side effects. Yeah. And actually it's relatively tricky to do that. Um, and we'll come on to some examples in a, in a minute. Chemoreceptor trigger zone. So that's the one that sits outside the blood-brain barrier 
typically that's stimulated through dopamine, mm -hmm. D2 receptors in particular, mm -hmm. and also serotonin, 5-HT. So again, if you can block off dopaminergics and um, dopamine blocking and serotonin blocking in that chemoreceptor trigger zone, then you're stopping that, therefore, stimulation of the vomiting center thereafter. We said vagus nerve in the GI tract, that's yeah. stimulated through 5-HT as well, serotonin. Yep. So if we've got a, prob a person that's got a problem with a direct insult to the GI tract, we can target a drug there. Vestibular system. Um, so the vestibular nuclei we were talking about, that then sends the signals to the vomiting center. That is typically mediated through histamine. So there's lots of H1 receptors in the vestibular nuclei and the vestibular system. So antihistamines work really, really well in the vestibular system. Um, higher centers is the hardest one <laughs> because receptors there are a little bit more tricky. Yeah. So typically if it's sensory input um, that's causing it, so sight, smell, these sort of things, angiolytics work really well. So benzodiazepines, or in the old days, barbiturates, mm. um, are very, very effective at stopping nausea caused by sensory input. Mm. So if people are panicked and freaking out and it's actually making them vomit, benzodiazepines can be a very, very effective thing for that. Cool. And direct insult by inflammation, depending on what that inflammation is, steroids work very well. Okay. So dexamethasone is a very potent anti-emetic drug in people with space. So it's anti-inflammatory in terms of controlling the underlying process, but also works as an anti-emetic because it's bringing down the inflammation. Cool. So all these receptor subtypes are really quick, are really, really clever. So we've done a whistle stop there, so we'll move on to the drugs. We'll illustrate the drugs through case studies, I think. Okay. And I'll put to you what drug you would prescribe because I know what you prescribe you prescribe on Danzatron for anything on Danzatron for everything in A&E the, the answer is on Danzatron and this is the point of doing this podcast is that yeah on Danzatron's a good drug but actually if you really think about the pathophysiology is you can use a more appropriate drug and actually you can get people's vomiting under control much more quickly <laughs> so we're in dream and uh, I'm drinking this water out of a tin from the from the um, where is it from from the SU because they've dropped it off because they're really nice people and it, it genuinely looks like a tin of Stella. It does look like you're drinking a tin of, of knockoff, so not even Stella, like cheap, yeah, no, like unbranded. Generic lager. Generic lager. So I walked into Dream and I was just <laughs> drinking my tin of water and I got some weird looks as if like you're drinking Well, you look stuff. like you should be shouting at pigeons, <laughs> arguing with pigeons for sort of judging you. It's excellent though. I appreciate those med students who drop this stuff over. Good work. Thank anyway. You, thank you to med students for dropping So let's off. chat about some cases. So let's start off with our, say, unspecified patient who, who's maybe a bit older, who comes in, um, haven't passed stool in three to four days, their abdomen's quite distended, um, they're feeling a bit sick, um, they're feeling a bit slow, they might have a bit of urinary retention as well. Um, they feel sick to their stomach. How much um, opiate are they on? <laughs> that's what, they're not on an opiate in this case. Oh, okay. Um, and generally just feeling really off. They feel very sick. They might have vomited once and the, the vomit that they brought up looks very suspicious. Um, fecally, maybe. They need an NG tube, don't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a whole other thing. So the first thing that you're seeing, because you haven't clicked on them yet, 
is can I have something for their nausea Dr Thomas mm. what are you thinking on Dan's a troll I think that's not a bad shout in this case so <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying on Dan's it. a troll so I think in this case this person is probably obstructed Absolutely, until, yeah. until proven otherwise Yeah. now think carefully about the pathophysiology of obstruction so there's two things going on here and the classic one is that there's potentially a mechanoreceptor um, reaction going on in the GI tract. Now, mechanoreceptors, like we said before, fits into that group that's a direct insult to the GI tract. And the direct insult to the GI tract is mediated through the vagal nerve, locally. Yes. Therefore, your best bet is to use something that's going to stop that vagal nerve process. And we know it's uh, facilitated through serotonin. So if we use something that blocks serotonin, then we're going to get the best bang for our buck. And in this case, ondansetron, or agents that are 5-HT blockers, are probably going to be a very good starting point to use. So ondansetron, uh, actually a very safe tolerated drug. You can use 4 to 8 milligrams um, as a stat, as a one-off dose. Usually we don't use more than 16 milligrams for people that aren't using chemotherapy. Um, very well tolerated drug typically um, side effects really only encompass a bit of headache um, and typically if you give it longer term it can constipate in its own right um, but the medical body kind of agree that if you're using it for somebody who's in an obstruction it's a very effective antiemetic cool. um, for, for chemo related problems they also use granesetron uh, which is another sort of sister drug of ondansetron good thing about ondansetron as well is we said the chemoreceptor trigger zone, so for our sort of poisoning, electrolyte imbalances, these sort of things, uh, we know the chemoreceptor trigger zone is triggered through serotonin as well. So ondansetron kind of gives you a dual effect of the GI tract as well as the chemoreceptor trigger zone. So it's a very good first-line drug to consider for, um, for these kind of direct GI insults. So it works really well. Uh, people you wouldn't use ondansetron on, I know we've said... Well, yeah, there's one particular group of patients that we are careful with on Dantatron. The main thing is actually QT, QT prolongation. So putting people on large amounts of Dantatron for extended periods of time, um, it has been associated with QT prolongation. Now, typically, we think that giving one-off small doses in the acute sense is very unlikely to cause any QT things. But if you have got somebody who's got unstable cardiac disease and unstable Q, a known long QT, then you might want to be a bit careful about using um, using Ondansetron. But it's a very good drug, very effective drug. Cool. Um, just as a backup, what would be your second line option if that didn't if that didn't work? What would be your thoughts? Hmm. Tricky. Not a prokinetic. Yeah, you probably want to avoid prokinetics in this case until you can rule out a full obstruction. Yeah. NG tube, we already mentioned. Yeah, actually, it's probably very effective at I mean, decompressing. So I, I don't know what pharmacologically my second choice would be from a mechanical obstruction. It's very tricky to use a lot. So unlicensed, and it, there is a bit of conflicting evidence about this, but traditionally you're taught that peripherally acting muscarinic receptor antagonists, so anti-muscarinics, technically speaking, they're contraindicated in obstruction. Uh, in, in absolute obstruction, they're, they're contraindicated. So these are drugs that relax smooth muscle. Um, 
and naturally you don't want to relax smooth muscle in somebody that's already got a large chronic constipation yeah. going on. That being said, there have been some trials and there is a bit of evidence to say that using um, peripheral muscarinic antagonists, so the main one being hyacine, mm. hyacine butyl bromide, buscopan, um, it can be effective at preventing spasming around the um, obstruction site and typically isn't going to cause a massive problem as a, as a dyskinetic agent. Um, so you'd have to use that with caution. You'd probably want to maybe chat to a gastroenterologist about it before you went like that. Um, but it does work as a quite effective anti-emetic, um, and it does, it's very good particularly for cramping relating to um, abdominal problems as well. Ooh. So your sort of colicky kind, abdominal colic kind of patients works very well. So case number two, Canal. All good, all good. So you mentioned it earlier, so a classic one, particularly in the ED and in acute medicine, is our either electrolyte disturbance related um, nausea and vomiting. Yield or where we've given them something to yes. chuck their guts up. So yes. classically, a bit of morphine. You only need to see one patient, one trauma patient who's collar unblocked and stuck to a spinal board, who's given morphine for their suspected fracture, whatever, who isn't given an antiemetic and mm -hmm. the panic that you have to cause to log roll a patient who goes, I'm about to vomit. And um, you, you only need to see that once. Uh, and all the issues therein to make sure you always co-prescribe an antiemetic. Absolutely. Ideally, a reasonable amount before you give them opium as well yeah. for it to get there. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. And, and the classic ones, I think, when the, the two that come to mind, particularly in, in ED, um, opiates, particularly morphine, um, which is quite metagenic, particularly when you give it IV, mm -hmm. um, and also macrolides. Classically, macrolides are quite emetic, uh, particularly again when you give them IV, so chlorothromycin, erythromycin, um, they're quite emetogenic. So, how's this mediated again? Do you remember what we said? So, this is, this is detected by the CTZ, that's which the sends one. a signal to your vomiting zone. Yeah, so classically, <coughs> this is one Vomiting centre. That's right. So classically, this is not something that we're putting in the GI tract, so you can't necessarily put it down to a direct insult to the GI tract. Um, though often, sometimes with oral drugs, it can actually be a bit of both, a bit of the direct insult and a bit of um, um, the detection by the chemoreceptor trigger zone. So in this case, put it straight into the blood. The chemoreceptor trigger zone has said, oh, there's something in the blood here that we don't like the look of. Um, we're going to send a, a signal over the vomiting center. Um, so we know that the two classic receptors, as we said, there's lots of receptors for the chemoreceptor trigger zone, but the two classic ones that it's very high rich of, dopamine, so D2 receptor, mm -hmm. and 5-HT receptor. Mm -hmm. So again, we can say straight away, ondansetron is not a bad option in treating these kind of, uh, these kind of patient profiles because you are going to block off some of that chemoreceptor trigger zone. Now, also sounds like a transformer. On Dancetron. That's not it. Yeah, you're right, actually. I am on Dancetron. <laughs> For God's sake. Right. Autobots roll out. It does sound like a Transformer. Anyway, continue. Sorry. We've that talked was about this before. Don't insult my drugs. <laughs> <laughs> my beautiful drugs. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Shame. It's just like the, you know, the good guy on Dancetron versus the evil Cyclozine or something. I don't know. It does sound like, it does sound like, they do sound like Transformers. Uh, I'm just going to say it once. Right. Right. Sorry. Okay, cool. So. I'll stop being so dopamine to you. So, oh, man. Oh, oh wow. I need to shut it's up. Just, Sorry. Just Sorry. Moving on. So, Dancetron, more than reasonable first line in this yep. kind of patient profile. Yeah. But we always have the backup of the 
D2 agents. Mm -hmm. So our classic D2 agents, um, the number one that's fallen a little bit out of fashion now, metoclopramide. Aha, yes. Is, a, is actually a really, really good drug. Um, it's a very, very potent anti-emetic. Um, we can give it IV or oral. We should say it on Dantastron, actually, you can give IV and oral, which is very, very good. Um, and metoclopramide is going to block off a lot of that um, chemoreceptor trigazone and stop the, the stimulation through to the vomiting center. The problem with metoclopramide is at higher doses, and particularly when you give it IV, there are issues in relation to dystonic reactions. Mm. So dopamine receptor antagonists are the group of drugs that are also the antipsychotic drugs. Um, and antipsychotic drugs you classically are associated with extrapyramidal side effects. So these are our um, akesthesias, our dyskinesias, our Parkinsonian things, and worst case scenario is tardative dyskinesias and things like that. Um, also ocular gyric crisis. I was gonna say yeah. ocular gyric crisis, yeah. And the couple of times, so I've seen ocular gyric crisis a couple of times um, in ED, and w at least one of them was where we'd been treating a young lady with IV metoclopramide. Uh, which, yeah, and it's, it's not very pleasant, it's quite difficult to deal with. Um, this is, a, I was trying to demonstrate that to Canal. Yeah, he did, he did a really good impression of it there. Um, so in particular, when using metoclopramide, you can use it very safely. Typically a 10 milligram dose is unlikely to precipitate um, any of these extrapyramidal doses off at a one-off one -off dose. Um, but when you're using it in a prolonged manner, so particularly for people that might be on chemotherapy uh, who need higher doses, um, you have to be a little bit careful about it. Um, in particular, young female women, and obviously children, we don't typically, well, young female women will know. Young women. <laughs> <laughs> young wow. Women. Maybe it is a bit. <laughs> sure wow, I mean, wow. Young, so young women seem to be particularly predisposed to, um, to, the, to the dyskinetic effects of metroclopramide, sure. um, particularly when you give it intravenously as well. Sure. Um, because metoclopramide is one of the ones that penetrates the blood-brain barrier. Sure. Metoclopramide has also got a prokinetic effect. Sure. So as yeah. we said before, in obstructive type patients, you would probably want mm. to avoid that kind mm. of a drug. Um, but it can be very useful for people that have got upper GI bloating, um, your sort of heartburny, mm. uh, gastritis -y oh, patients. Oh, to help them empty their stomach. Yeah, and, and actually yeah. it can be quite... So people with uh, gastroparesis, so nausea mm. related to gastroparesis, mm. metoclopramide can actually be a really good option. Did I invent... Uh, there was a point. It was very, very um, au fait to be used in ACS. Metoclopramide, yeah. So oh, I did think I invent that? Oh, yeah, kind of like, oh, yeah give the aspirin copy and everything and then all oh, metoclopramide as well because mm. you'll feel nauseated while you're having your MI. And so I think it's, so I, I don't think it was specifically metoclopramide that has been like, that's the number one drug for use, to, for use in MI. Um, so if, again, if you go back to, go, go back to our pathology, so the nausea mechanism for somebody having an MI is actually the fact that you've got ischemic um, lysis type chemicals that are leaking out into the bloodstream that are hitting the chemoreceptor trigazone. So therefore, a, a dopamine agonist, a, sorry, dopamine antagonist, is a very effective way of treating MI-related nausea and vomiting. So it is a naturally good choice for something to have an MI. And Anstron's probably more than reasonable option as yeah, well. Yeah, it was just a thing I seemed to think, oh, yeah, no, yeah. metacopamide. I don't know whether it's just because certain people have their drug that they like to prescribe and, and whether it was more that. I think it's classically taught, isn't it? What's, what's the drugs you get for MI, like nitrates, um, 
oxygen, dimorphine, aspirin if they're um, hypoxic and yeah. dimorphine. Yeah. Whereas I think things have moved on a little bit now, and we have other drugs in our arsenal and things like that. Yeah. Cool. So all that sort of thing. So metoclopramide, good drug. Um, related to metoclopramide would be domperidone. Aha. Uh-huh, yes. So domperidone is a really good drug again. It's very similar to metoclopramide. Its main difference is it doesn't penetrate the blood-brain barrier in the way that metoclopramide does. So it typically will not cause those dyskinetic extrapyramidal effects. Mm. It will still give you some of that um, uh, extra motility through the gastro tract. So you'll get good for these gastroparesis type patients. Um, Problem with domperidone is we don't have an IV option. Um, and there used to be a very good rectal option, but I don't think they even make that anymore now. It's effective. It was very good. It was good stuff when we used it for that. Um, but I think they don't make it anymore now, Matillium suppositories. So it's got limited benefit when we're using it for acute vomiting, because typically when you're trying to give an oral therapy to somebody who's vomiting, they're not going to absorb it very well. Um, but longer term therapy for gastroparesis and your people that are high risk for um, extrapyramidal effects, it's a very effective um, drug. Domperidone is another one that you have to watch out for QT prolongation, particularly at higher doses. Cool. And if we just go back to ocular gyric crisis, yep. what is the treatment of that? So say you, you know, you've got a patient, I mean the usual ones we see is something like yourself, they've had IV, antiemetic, mm. yeah. um, often the patients I've seen have been because they've had chemotherapy, yeah. so they've had a lot of IV, antiemetic yeah, at yeah, the same time. Right. Yep. And then they come in and, you know, they're staring up at the ceiling, they can't move their eyes. Yep. You know, they're going, what on earth is this? Mm. What, what's our treatment option? Yeah, so, I mean, when, when this happens and you've diagnosed it correctly, because um, it is a tricky diagnosis, there's other functional things that could be going on, but what you're looking at here is what you've done is you've, you've pushed the balance of dopamine and acetylcholine too close towards dopamine, therefore you've, you've stopped the neurotransmission of muscles and that's what's causing the extrapyramidal effects. So effectively you need to rebalance by giving an acetylcholine type agent. And what we do is we therefore give anticholinergics. Um, so we give uh, procyclidine is our, is our drug of choice here. So we would give five to 10 milligrams of procyclidine, usually IV, which is an antidote for these kind of extrapyramidal effects. Um, other places might use things like trihexafenadiol and other clever or phenadrin. <laughs> Um, there's lots of other anti-muscarinics that you can use, but the one that we use is Procyclidine. And how quickly does that work? Pretty damn quick. So you should see an effect within 15 minutes to, to half an hour, particularly if you give it intravenously. Um, it's, it's effective stuff, and usually it will reverse it quite nicely when you see it. Cool. Mm, very effective stuff. So that was uh, that case, case That's number three. Our, yeah, and just remember, so the, the same, the, we've talked about poisoning, so we've talked about um, morphine, macrolides, these sort of things equally effective in electrolyte disturbances. So things like hypercalcemia, Mm. um, which can cause quite nasty nausea. Uh, It's technically through the same mechanism as this. Obviously you want to treat the underlying cause there, but symptomatically using ondansetron, using metoclopramide, something like that works quite effectively. Cool. Um, So electrolyte disturbance and other poisonings are quite useful. So we'll move on to the vestibular system. So this is our motion sickness, vertigo type of patients. Mm. So, Say our patient comes in, say a older person potentially who more insidious onset has this, says when they're getting up, they feel dizzy. Um, they're feeling like they need to sit back down. Uh, they felt really sick with it. 
uh, and they've vomited a couple of times with it as well. Uh, and we've ruled out anything really nasty. So you know, we posterior stroke. Yeah, yeah, we've, yeah, we've ruled out the strokes and the bleeds and anything suspicious. And we, we're thinking this could be a bit of vertigo or this could be a bit of um, um, vestibular issues going on. Mm. So given that we know that we said that this is all antihistamine and anti-muscarinic type uh, mediation, what would be your go-to here? Well, with my A&E hat on, mm. prochlorperazine yeah. would be a useful potential agent here. Prochlorperazine is a, is, a, is a very good choice in this. So prochlorperazine is a, is one, is a fabulous drug actually because it's got so many multiple mechanisms to it. <laughs> so prochlorperazine originally was an antipsychotic, so we still use it for psychosis at higher doses, it's quite effective. But at the lower doses, it's actually a very effective anti-emetic. Um, it's a dopamine antagonist in its own right, so it will block D2 receptors, so it will give you chemoreceptor trigger zone cover um, for, for those type of cases we've talked about. Um, and we know that the vestibular issue, the vestibular system feeds into both the vomiting centre and the CTZ. So if you can block off a bit of the CTZ, you're going to get some efficacy. Prochloroperazine has actually got a lot of antihistamine effect as well. So it's going to block off those histamine receptors that are through the vestibular nuclei and stop the transmissions getting through from there. Mm. And it's actually quite highly anti-muscarinic as well in its own right. So it's also going to block off the muscarinic receptors that are sitting both on the vomiting centre because it will get through the CNS um, and also within the vestibular apparatus as well. So it's a mixed, um, mixed mechanism. Very mixed. Yeah, way of doing it. And you, and you can actually use it for, you can use it pretty effectively even in your patients who have got the, um, uh, the poisonings and the bloodborne issues as well. Um, so very effective drug. Uh, the dose will be, typically we go with 12.5 milligrams IM. Uh, for your patient that's actively vomiting. Um, but it's pretty well tolerated orally as well, so we can give five to 10 milligrams uh, up to TDS as well orally as a more long-term therapy as an antiemetic. So in between the lip and the gum, three milligrams, uh, and then it gets absorbed straight into the GI tract. So again, it's useful for your people who are actively vomiting. So that's a very good option. <clears throat> your other option would actually be an old-fashioned one, cyclozine. Mm -hmm. So cyclozine, we know it's a history. It's got out of fashion. I remember yeah. when I started, like, because my first job was surgery, and it was like, cyclozine, 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 you know, lots of cyclozine. And now it seems to be, I do not prescribe cyclozine. So cyclozine is, again, a very effective antiemetic. Um, it's an antihistamine, yeah. first and foremost. So for vestibular issues, we know that's histamine-related. So it's going to block off a lot of that histamine, probably a, a more potent antihistamine than prochloperazine is. And again, it's quite an anti-muscarinic agent. So you're going to get some M1 blockage off the back of that as well. So it is effective. Um, the problem with cyclozine is it can cause CNS toxicity. <coughs> so euphoric. Um, it can cause a tachycardia. So that's the big thing. So I remember, like, I remember, especially female again, female women. Love those female women. Love those female women. Yeah. So young female patients, if it was given IV for whatever reason, I would then be called going, doctor, she feels quite unwell, and yeah. you do an ECG, and they should have developed a sinus tachycardia about yeah. 120. Going, <laughs> and then you know you'd speak to your reg, you'd go, oh, I've seen this before. Mm. You'd wait a bit, and it's gone, and go, right, okay, that was fine. It's just yeah, yeah. Um, it can certainly cause a tachycardia because there's histamine receptors in the myocardium, so you can get a tachycardia off the back of that. Um, it's also because it's so powerfully anticholinergic, 
Um, so naturally, what do we use to treat bradycardia? We use atropine. Mm -hmm. Cyclozine is atropine-like, so it will cause a tachycardia, particularly when you give it IV. Um, and we actually, we didn't qualify our statement. So metoclopramide, we said young women, the reason that it's thought that young women are more predisposed is because they have a more um, permeable blood-brain barrier. Okay. Um, and it's the same concept for cyclozine, so they're more likely to get the dysphoric effects off the back of cyclozine it's as well. It's more potentiated, because they more bang for your buck, yeah, essentially. exactly. Yeah. Um, and it is addictive, and it's, it's actually a drug of abuse. So we typically don't like using it where we don't have to when we have more sensible options. And it's, it's a difficult one because it is a very effective antiemetic, um, but you just have to be a bit careful about that because you're right, it is a drug of abuse. And I've been, I've been done on that. I've prescribed IV cyclozine. Somebody said, oh, I, I'm allergic to all these other antiemetics. Mm. Um, so you do have to be a bit careful about it. Um, going back to procloperazine very briefly. So as we said, because it is a D2 antagonist um, in the same way that metoclopramide is, there is a small risk of the extrapyramidal side effects. Okay. But it doesn't tend to be as bad as metoclopramide. It tends to be a little bit better tolerated, particularly mm. in stat doses. Mm. Um, sedative as well, quite sedative, um, mm. because of its antihistamine effect and its antimuscarinic effect. So be a bit careful giving it to really old people for extended periods of time because it's going to increase their falls risk and add to their anticholinergic burden. One other one to talk about very quickly for um, vestibular issues is an older fashion drug, hyacine, but not buscopan, hyacine hydrobromide, oh. also known as scopalamine. So this is classically a patch you put behind the ear. Heard about these travel sickness patches? I have indeed. Yeah, yes. so quite popular in the US. We don't mm. use as much of it now for um, as an antiemetic because it's very, very um, anticholinergic. So it makes people fall over, it makes people confused and things like that. Mm. Um, but that's very powerful in the vestibular system on the muscarinic receptors. Mm. Uh, and it's also very powerful directly on the vomiting center. Because we said the vomiting center itself is quite muscarinic rich. And this drug um, gets through the CNS. So the hydrobromide salt gets through the CNS. Whereas the butyl bromide, the classic buscopan, hyacine, doesn't really penetrate the CNS very much. Um, so it is an effective drug in very particular people, but it dries you right up. Like we, we only really use it in people that have got um, uh, excess salivation and secretions and things like that these days. Yeah. Um, so it is an option, but it's something you wouldn't want to use first line, definitely. Good. So move on very quickly to our higher centers. So now we've got our person who is, well, I don't, I'm trying to think of an example now. Um, <laughs> So someone who's witnessed, uh, someone that's been in a trauma, somebody maybe we've um, very worked up. Broken um, some bad news too. Yeah, broken yeah. bad news, um, and they feel sick to their stomach and they vomit. And it can happen, it's relatively often mm. this kind of thing happens. Mm. Now we said this is all mediated through the higher centers. Mm -hmm. We said, well I told you the drug earlier, what did you use? You did, did what, you? Do you, what do you think? <laughs> um, well, so, I mean, you also mentioned <coughs> cyclical vomiting. Yep. And um, I'm sure it's not breaking any confidentiality to say, you know, we do have patients who have care plans for cyclical yep. vomiting. Yep, that's right. I'm sure other places do as well. I'm sure that's okay for me to say this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one of the drugs that is on there is lorazepam. Yep. Is, is in some of their care plans, which is a benzodiazepine. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so 
something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so low. <laughs> this low, is how you cheat your way through medicine. <laughs> so lowish dose. Yes, lowish um, dose. I would benzodiazepines say. Yeah. can be very effective for um, for these higher cortical center nausea and vomitings. Um, so using in particular lorazepam, so half a milligram to a milligram. Um, you can use it IM, but you want to try and avoid using it parenterally if you can. Um, lorazepam can be used unlicensed sublingually, um, which is something that we sometimes use as a go-to. So if you put a lorazepam tablet under the tongue, uh, it gets absorbed directly into the, blood, into, the, into the bloodstream and it works very quickly as well. Um, what you then get is this angiolytic type effect. Um, and the angiolytic effect tends to calm down the nausea and the vomiting. Um, so benzos tend to be your first line. Barbiturates don't use because we, we don't use that and it's probably there's a much more toxicity related profile for Dirty that. drugs. There is the other thing there. So this is where we could talk about the third group of the dopamine um, antagonists. So we've talked about metoclopramide domperidone, which mm. is sort of one group. We've talked about um, procloperazine. Uh, promethazine is the other one we didn't talk about that kind of falls into that class. We then have haloperidol and drolperidol. So these are very potent dopamine antagonists that we mainly only use for psychosis. Mm. They're still very good at blocking off the chemoreceptor tribosome, so they will still have some benefit in refractory patients to your ondansetrons and your metoclopramides and things like that, um, who have got your blood-borne type um, reasons for their vomiting. But haloperidol also has effect on higher centers. It is a tranquilizing drug. So people in mixed um, higher cortical center stimulation vomiting plus mixed bloodborne stimulation. So this is classically your overdose type patient. Um, you can use lowish dose haloperidol. Um, we, you can use it IM, you can use it orally. Um, you have to be very careful about how much you use, um, but it can be very effective for the, for the emesis in those kind of patients. Cool. Um, haloperidol and drolperidol they would carry the highest risk of extrapyramidal effects. So that's the one that you have to be very, very careful about, and probably the highest risk of even one dose pushing someone into extrapyramidal effects. Mm. Cool. You'd never give it IV. Never give it IV. It's unlicensed intravenously, so nobody should ever be prescribing haloperidol IV without a very good reason. Critical care very occasionally do it. Um, and it's the same for procloperazine. You don't use IV um, procloperazine or IV haloperidol. Use it IM at worst, and ideally orally where possible. Cool. Yeah, but it is a good option for your higher cortical centre. I know some I've um, seen oncologists to patients uh, who obviously they there are they have cancer. They mixture of their cancer, mixture of their chemotherapy have really nasty nausea and vomiting. Yep. And ondansetron's been exhausted mm. other things have been exhausted and I, i've seen haloperidol given yeah and, and with some very good results it, it's it's a very like, good like a miracle yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mm. It, it's very effective stuff uh, <clears throat> and drolperidol as well mm. the thing is the the side effect profile is vast yes so when you're putting it on when you're putting somebody regularly on it you have to be a bit careful for the risk benefit and that's why you use the cleaner drugs earlier on but it is a very good option um, for those kind of patients cool and then there's our last case to chat about very quickly, which is our direct insult to the CNS, which is probably the most difficult one to deal with in the acute sense. Yeah. So naturally, you don't know what's going on because this is typically your undifferentiated patient. You don't really know what's going on at that point. 
ED, typically we throw a bit of um, we throw a bit of ondansetron at them, but we don't really know what's going on at this point in time. And we then irradiate their head as we find out if they've got a bleed or whatever that it is that's, well. that started their vomiting. Exactly. Yep. But say in the head, we see structural damage. We see sometimes a tumor, which is unfortunate. Sometimes a big subdural hematoma, which is pressing on everything. Yep. Sometimes a stroke. Yep. All of these sort of things typically are causing a direct insult to the to the CNS, mm -hmm. and that's going to, as we said, feed directly into the vomiting centre. Depending on the situation specifically, you want to treat the underlying cause, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can decompress, mm -hmm. um, so your people with hydrocephalus, your people with um, big hematomas that need surgical neurosurgical intervention, that's what you have to do very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, but your tumours and things like that, they respond mm. very well to dexamethasone. Mm. And again, you'll find particularly people with the glioblast uh, glioblastomas and the astromas, um, so brain cancers, they'll typically be on dexamethasone as a dual effect, as an anti-inflammatory, mm. as well as a anti-emetic. Mm. And there's very good evidence for using dexamethasone in that kind of patient profile. Yeah. Um, some effect on higher cortical centres as well. Mm. So it's got a bit of mixed mixed mechanisms as well. And also has the, so that swelling as well can, can cause the vomiting, can be responsible for other nasty symptoms as well, like seizures as yep, well. So absolutely. when doing that, you're also then controlling the seizure control, you know. Yeah, abnormal reflexes. So you have to remember with this, this is, these are these type of people with big space occupying lesions or mm. direct insults where their reflexes, their neurology is altered. Yeah. And naturally we know the vomiting reflex is neurology to a certain extent. Yes. It's facilitated through the vomiting center. Yeah, so to touch on cyclical vomiting syndrome very quickly as well. So we, we kind of touched on that. So that is a, cyclical vomiting syndrome is a very controversial diagnosis. So it's a syndrome, it's not a diagnosis in particular. Mm. So this, these are your type of people that vomit, often feel sick all the time, um, that are typically very refractory to lots of different types of drugs to try mm. and control them. Mm. And typically, we mentioned it earlier on, but they think that there's some cortical input into it. Mm. So they, some sort of a pathological reason triggers the vomiting, which then triggers the cortical center because they don't like the vomit. That can which be particularly distressing. Reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. Which then triggers more vomiting. Mm. And in that case, you're just using a drug to try and break the cycle. Yes. And actually, that's why benzos and steroids can actually be quite effective. Mm. Um, so lorazepam, I know I've seen a few care plans, and we've used... I am lorazepam quite effectively in those patients beforehand. Mm. Um, but it isn't a very well understood area of medicine. No. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tricky one. It's a very tricky one, that. So it's not this person definitely has cyclical vomiting syndrome. This is a syndrome. We don't really know what's going on with this person necessarily, but mm. it's to give them a label and a diagnosis to a certain extent. What about mannitol? So mannitol, yeah, yeah. So yeah. yeah, in your cerebral edemas, yeah, um, and maybe a hemorrhagic strokes, you can use osmotic diuretics. So mannitol being one. Um, occasionally, you can use things like acetazolamide, which is carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. That's going to push water out of the CNS, so it pushes bicarb off you, um, and will actually. It's, it's, it's an old-fashioned treatment for hydrocephalus as well. Um, so you can occasionally see mannitol and, and that, but mannitol you wouldn't you wouldn't cause man, you wouldn't call mannitol anti-emetic. You'd call it a diuretic that's treating the underlying problem. Of which then a reduction in vomiting may be a benefit. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Cool. Exactly. So yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting area. 
the, the take-home message is when you're treating nausea and vomiting, there's, there is a culture of like, this is my go-to drug and this is what I'm going to give them, i.e. ondansetron. I'm not saying, ondansetron is a very, very effective drug. I use a lot of ondansetron. Um, it's a versatile drug with not a lot of side effects. But sometimes it can be a case of just st taking a step back. What do I think is the underlying process and how am I going to target my therapy to that underlying process? So particularly in your patients who are refractory to the first line treatments, take a step back, think what's the pharmacology, what drugs have I got available, um, what's the risk side effect profile for this patient, and what's my best choice in that scenario. Cool. Thank you so much, Canal. Been a pleasure. Very good episode. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your uh, cans of water. I will and, do. Uh, <laughs> water. <laughs> stay safe. Will do, you too. Keep washing your hands, everyone. We've got an ED to man. We do. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode, uh, guys. And yeah, stay safe yourself. And um, speak to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.